welcome back and thank you for sticking through those commercial breaks. I'm very excited to introduce our guest for today is Professor Karok Ray, who is the director over at the Mays Innovative Research Center at Texas A&M, who is an economist there as well. Professor Ray, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. In your own words, how would you describe yourself? Thank you, Q. Thank you for, for having me. It's great to see you again after all these years. It's Your hair's gone, I've gotten a little longer from back in college, but it's uh, you're still looking good. So I am a professor here at Texas A&M in College Station. I'm a, I, I am essentially a, an economist who has studied game theory my whole life. That's where I, that's my, my, my academic vintage. And I also am interested in technology. I run an innovation center. I'm the research director for the Mays Innovation Research Center, which I founded five years ago here at Texas A&M. And a lot, we do a lot on Bitcoin. It's probably our biggest area of research. We host an annual conference. We, uh, we have several, several panel discussions per year. I advise, I'm the faculty advisor for our student Bitcoin club, and we have a Bitcoin lab where we do a lot of mining and education on Bitcoin. So there's a lot that we do around Bitcoin because it is, in my opinion, the greatest innovation of our time. And that's what we, my center is dedicated to studying innovation. Well, I, it's wonderful to meet you. I'm so excited to meet someone from Q's past who can regale <laughs> us with stories of his just atrocious academic performance. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I I love the idea. You said like there's, there's a Bitcoin lab. I love that idea. Like there's like a bunch of, of, of college students who are like tinkering, learning how that works. You said that, that there's, you are, there's mining happening there. What other kinds of exercises or what other kinds of things are people exploring in that lab and what does it look like like paint us a word picture are there like yeah. wires hanging everywhere yeah yeah actually so the lab is actually a it's an off-campus lab that i founded last year and it essentially is a space for students to innovate and experiment it's hosting several student clubs that i advise robotics bitcoin are the big main ones and i think one thing i wanted to do is to give people a space to at least have some content with the genesis of Bitcoin and where the ideas came from. So we have on the wall photos of 12 cypherpunks that were elemental in, in the genesis of Bitcoin and some of the ideas that led to Bitcoin. We also have a graph, a nice graphic of so, sort of the, the 50 ideas or so that, that kind of led into Bitcoin over a long history. So people get a sense that this is not just some dating app that, that a college dropout made. But it's actually real deep technology, and so we wanted to. I wanted to convey that. So the, the walls are kind of displaying all of these different hist historical foundations of Bitcoin, and then we have several mining rigs that have been donated to us. Some are working, some are actually broken, where the kids can tinker with them and kind of look at them inside. We have several S9s that are running, and so it's a it's a great space for students to have some physical contact with Bitcoin. You know, it, it, it's an abstract concept. It's an abstract. Bitcoin is, is hard stuff. And I think it's important for kids, especially young kids, both students as well as in, the, in our community, to get a knowledge of, of what, what this really is. And so, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a nice little play space that, you know, I hope one day we will, you know, we will, there will, there will be Bitcoin museums around the world somewhere where people can really kind of like get a sense of what, how, what it is and how it works. That's so cool. Yeah. What happens to the Bitcoin that you guys successfully mine there? Where so it's, yeah, it's, it stays in the endowment for the lab. So, so we, we will, right now we haven't sold any of it. You know, we're, 
it's a small operation. The uh, the miners are basically they're just a, there's three of them really that are working. Two of them broke down. They're they're basically just S nines, which which now is getting getting old technology, and they are they're essentially breaking even. I mean, we're energy is cheap in Texas, but the residential market is still pretty expensive. So we're not we're not we're essentially paying for the cost of, of power. It's 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 covering the cost of power, and then over time, it, you know, we hope we can use it to fund the activities for the students. That's so cool. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Can we talk a little bit? I know that you also sort of put together a Bitcoin conference down at A&M and Texas seems to be a growing hub for just Bitcoin mining in this country. Right. You talk about how that sort of come to be and, and what you're seeing transpire down there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really exciting what's happening here in Texas. So what happened was the con- let me address the first question about the conference. I was, I was the organizer of this Bitcoin conference uh, two years ago, which was our first Bitcoin conference. And I would say it was, you know, it was similar to kind of like a G-rated version of Bitcoin Miami. So it was similar in style. We had panel discussions, a lot of famous people talking, mostly for finance, actually, on, on Friday. So we had two days. The first day was uh, big name speakers like Michael Saylor and Ray Dalio offering their opinions on Bitcoin, which was over Zoom. We had 2,000 people online watching. And then on Saturday, the next day, we did a full day face-to-face. It was during the pandemic. So this was actually pretty unusual to have a face-to-face conference during the pandemic where we had a lot of the people in the Bitcoin space, Bitcoin entrepreneurs, you know, like, like you know, like Corey Klipstein, for example, and, and uh, Jesse Powell. So a lot of different people involved in mining and in, in Bitcoin exchanges some Bitcoin investment firms, they would be talking about their Bitcoin businesses on Saturday. So that was a big, a big success. It was a ton of work, honestly, but it was fun. I did meet a lot of people. And the next year, this year, we had a second kind of conference. It was different. It was a little more academic. And this was where I sent a call for papers out for faculty to, to write papers on Bitcoin. And I wasn't sure who was going to submit a paper, but we got, you know, we had over a hundred submissions and we picked, well, I picked essentially eight papers to present that, that the faculty would present from around the world, as far away as France, they flew in for, for two days and they presented their research. And the goal of that is to help build out the academic pipeline of research in Bitcoin so that in the long term, universities can get on board and treat this as a legitimate discipline. And so that was, that was another success. This year, I think we'll do something different, hopefully something with, for developers. Uh, we're still working out what that'll look like. Texas is booming in Bitcoin. It is Bitcoin country for many reasons. I would say first, there's a huge amount of the developers that have located to Austin, partly because of the exodus during the, during the pandemic from California, from the, we say, like to say the People's Republic of California, moving to, to Austin. And the second thing, probably even bigger than that, is is the, the 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 migration of the of the miners into Texas, both domestically and from China. So after China cracked down on the miners, many of those miners, many of some of whom I've met, have moved and moved their businesses to to parts of Texas where, relative in the U.S., it's still very crypto friendly and it's the energy is cheap. And so a lot of these miners have have moved here. An example is in Rockdale, which is about an hour from College Station about an hour from Austin, right in between us, has the, some of the largest coin mines in the world. And they really perfected immersion cooling and other really advanced techniques with, uh, with Bitcoin mining. Right now, I think, uh, I think the estimates around 10% of worldwide hash power is, is in Texas. And that's probably going to grow as long as China doesn't change their rules, which they don't look like they are. We'll probably grow up to 20% in the next decade, even 25%. 
So, so the Bitcoin meetups in Texas are a big deal. People travel from all over to, to them. Uh, the Austin one is a developer meetup. The Houston one is really a mining meetup. And, and Fort Worth is just getting started too. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a really great place for Bitcoin. I think it aligns well with, for several reasons. It's, it's sort of on the right side of our, our philosophical and political beliefs, as well as the, the legacy oil and gas infrastructure is, is actually extremely relevant for Bitcoin, both because of the, the mining facilities and the human capital. The, the skills and, the, and the, pe- the talent needed to run a Bitcoin mine are very similar to what, what's, what's needed in successful oil and gas. I want to talk a little bit about just, you know, we, we've talked P and I about the game theory happening in real time. First, domestically speaking, we have states like Texas who've been on the forefront of bringing miners in, bringing in and setting up regulations that help them set up in ways that achieve success. And then you have states like New York who go out of their way to make legislation that doesn't even make sense to any of their own legislators, but that just curbs development in that state. Do you like how do you see the game theory of these playing out domestically? Will there just be more a more polarizing effect where some states just won't even bother touching it? Or will everyone be eventually forced to have some sort of exposure to Bitcoin and, and mining in particular? Yeah, so let me first answer that at the international level before I get to the domestic. At the international level, between the U.S. and China, actually, I think what China did to crack down on the miners, while it was sort of, in my opinion, but still the wrong decision from them, there's a lot of hydropower that they're now not able to capture because of that. In some level, it was the right decision for the U.S. because, you know, when China moves left, the U.S. wants to move right. And it would be sort of, it actually plants a flag that because so many because the u.s seeks to define itself in some level in opposition to china the fact that they oppose bitcoin mining is actually good for the general political sentiment here in the u.s now that said i'm a big fan of regulatory competition competition among states for what the best regulation is this is this is in the history of economics this has been proven to be a a great way to discover what the right level of regulation is so i'm a big fan of allowing states like wyoming and texas which are being very Bitcoin friendly at the moment and to put some political pressure on states like New York, especially as these these Bitcoin mining operations can eventually generate a lot of benefits to the local economies, which is already happening here in Texas. So I hope New York and other of some of the other coastal cities and states will recognize some of the benefits that they need to get on board with here in here in 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 Texas, there's a, you know, it's a, it's a little more complicated in Texas for several reasons, because the grid is unique to Texas. And we, we are, we also, we have some issues that we need to sort out where we're in the, in the midst of doing that. But, but I think overall, it, it has been very beneficial for the, 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 the state economy. And, and I'm almost sure that would be the case across different, different states as well. When you have conversations with the miners that are in Texas, what are certain things that they want more of or even less of? Like, what is it they are looking for from for from legislators in the state? Yeah, I think the miners are actually very, very. I, I'm actually surprised, to be totally frank. I'm a rational economist who who believes that people do and should act extremely rationally. Uh, and I think maybe they are acting rationally in the long term, but they're they're very very uh, cooperative with the state in terms of communicating what they need and 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 how they how, how they are going to go about it. The main issue with the miners in Texas is should they turn off during times of peak demand? 
And that happens, for example, in the summers and the winters during these extreme weathers here in Texas, when there's a lot of use for electricity. And, and it turned out in the, essentially in the, this last heat wave we had sort of a month or two ago, that many of the miners turned off their mining rigs and ba essentially balanced out the, the grid in Texas. And so I think what they're mostly looking for is some clarity and visibility from the state on what will be their, the right incentives for them to, uh, to turn off and at the, what, at what, what the right time is. Now, the price of electricity in, in, a, in a full free market should communicate most of that. It's a little more complicated because you have, you know, with Texas, you, you've got, we've got our own grid separate from the rest of the country, and we want to make sure we don't, we don't you know, break it, essentially. So, so what's, what's happening in Texas is the Texas Blockchain Council is a nonprofit based out of Dallas. They have, they have, they're essentially coordinating a lot of the different miners, the big miners in Texas, to make sure that they can turn off at the right times so that the grid itself is not harmed and turn on at the right times also to provide more balance over those times of, of peak, of off-peak off times. And the reason this helps the grid is because, you know, absent Bitcoin mining, the energy is, it fluctuates a lot. And, and Bitcoin can, the mining operations can essentially reduce the volatility of the usage, which will be better for the grid as a whole. And so that's some of the logic for why it makes, it makes economic sense to do this. And the blockchain council has been very, very productive and very successful in, in doing that. I would recommend if you really want further, further insights into that, I can put, I can put you in touch with the people there who, who work on that full time. No, totally. I mean, I'm just curious more your thoughts on this. And this is a, a question from the chat, but obviously we're talking about letting the the market sort of dictate when and where the energy is getting distributed the bitcoin miners tend to just have the money to to pay for it why why should they have to shut down other than of course to let people survive Be, beyond the the humanity aspect of it is there an economic incentive there that's driving these energy companies to want to expand the grid exponentially greater far greater than what the capacity is required today rather than leave it sort of within a range that will only get to peak energy usage during times like a heat wave that we saw a few weeks ago now. Yeah, I think if the market was completely free and the price could be what you want, you would not need any intervention from any anyone, any from the from the the government or from TBC or so on. And the price could do all of the all of the communication of of behavior for the relevant parties. And so, you know, when, when, when prices go up, that's usually that, you know, even though that's, that seems like it's bad for consumers, it's good for the supply side of the market because it brings more supply online, similar to surge pricing with Uber. The problem with electricity is that it's not as, is because it's a regulated industry, uh, you can't just have these, uh, these prices completely unlimited. Well, I, you know, I would, I would think you could personally and politically, I think you, you should let the price be, be fully, fully flexible. But in, in reality, there, I think there's a little bit of a political desire to constrain that, that band of allowable prices, especially on the, on the upside. And also, there may be technological barriers for what, how much capacity a, the, the grid can bear at any given time. And so for us in Texas, like the, in, you know, with, the, with the Texas freeze last, last, last winter, I think if the price was allowed to be totally free, people would have rationally underconsumed and you know reduced their demand for electricity during the freeze. But because it wasn't, 
what happened is we became very close to breaking the grid. And so, you know, I think it was a few minutes away from actually shutting down and doing some permanent damage to the, to the, uh, to the energy pipeline. So because we don't allow for full and fair, full free pricing, that's the reason why we have these other mechanisms like the state having to negotiate with the, the Bitcoin miners, either directly or through nonprofit entities like the blockchain council. I think that's such a, a, an important point there that because we don't have a free market in these spaces, that directly led or rather indirectly led to the situation we had in Texas where basically the grid almost, you know, went up in smoke and fire and lightning right. and, you know, there were crazy lights everywhere. It would have been like a firework factory exploding. That's what it's like in my head. Uh, don't I, forget the Ted Cruz in Cancun. Never, of course, we'll never hundred percent. I just feel like any time that you have these over-regulated, we, we, people like to think that we live in a free and open market. That seems to be like a, a major tenant of the the kind of the American dream. And the reality is, there are there's almost nothing that we there's almost no markets that we as individuals participate in in this country that are not artificially being manipulated one way or another. And I think that uh, that is a, a a truth that is hard for a lot of people to, to wrap their head around. I think it's very interesting. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I saw this kind of full time face to face when I was I worked in the White House during the during the financial crisis in 2008. And, you know, that was an example of, you know, every single day in the I was the financial I was doing the on the Council of Economic Advisors. Almost every day we would get a phone call from someone in the economy that was complaining about some economic problem that they were facing. Eventually, all those became, you know, calls from Wall Street and not being able to trade in mortgage-backed securities. But the reason for all of this is that it almost always came out of some existing regulation or law that created this broken or, or captured market of some kind. Hey, guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BitMEX. BitMEX is one of the biggest supporters of the Bitcoin space in the last decade, actively donating to developers and putting out some of the most cited research articles. What you might not know is that BitMEX recently launched a brand new spot exchange and mobile app that takes the experience of buying and holding to the next level. We know that, especially in uncertain market conditions, you need an exchange that is trustworthy and innovative. Sign up at bitmex.com today, check out the BitMEX blog for some great market insights, and stay tuned to our podcast for more from their team. To sign up for a BitMEX account, go to bitmex.com forward slash Bitcoin magazine or click the link in the show description below. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. I'm, I'm curious if you feel as though the current conversations we're seeing in this in this day and age the idea of using more energy almost has this negative connotation throughout at least a conversation with about half of the world right now and as we sort of ramp up into this far more technologically advanced day and age 
I think it's ne almost a necessity that we increase our energy usage. But can we talk a little bit about how, how or what needs to happen to shift, I think, the global sentiment around using energy? You do a lot of work, I think, in analyzing computer science and artificial intelligence, and everything is just going to continue to compound more and more. I'm curious, first on just the energy usage, how do we get there? Yeah, so I think, let me let me discuss, that's a great question. Let me talk a little bit about the macro level. At the macro level, we do know some facts, which is that energy, individual energy usage is, is broadly correlated with measures of economic prosperity. It, and and it's, it's pretty obvious if you think about our society today versus where we started in caves in terms of energy usage. So so in general, there's a correlation between those two, those two macro, macro variables, something like GDP per capita and energy usage, or you could say any other measure of, of well-being. I want to, I want to, let me talk a little bit about the, the public versus private way to answer that question. So on the, on the public side, I certainly don't believe that governments in any sense should mandate or even recommend what individuals should spend their energy on. That should be a completely an individual decision. And so if one person wants to mine Bitcoin, they have that, 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 that right. They should not be legislated or, or mandated otherwise for the same reason that someone is, can, can choose to run their AC at a certain power in the summer or their heat in the winter. That's an individual decision and they should pay a price for that, which is the price in the market. But beyond that, there really should not be any, any, any problem with anyone paying that price if they can afford it. So that's on the, that's on the sort of the public public analysis of energy usage. And then on the private side, you know, taking the government out of it, should we as a society collectively encourage or discourage different forms of, of energy usage? You know, that's, I don't have a strong opinion on, on, on that. I would say it's up to the, uh, you know, our society to argue amongst ourselves and uh, maybe persuade others about what is or is or is not a good use of energy. The way this impacts Bitcoin, for example, is a lot of people have been critical of Bitcoin because of its energy usage. You know, I just need to, I think it's important to remind everyone there's nothing in the Bitcoin protocol that requires fossil fuels. You know, it's, 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 it does require energy, but really the, the only reason it's requiring fossil fuels is because our energy infrastructure today does rely heavily on fossil fuels. Bitcoin is completely agnostic to, to the energy source. So, you know, I hear this all the time among people talking about, well, Bitcoin is bad for the environment. You know, really, that's not true. Bitcoin does require energy, and our, our current energy infrastructure relies on fossil fuels primarily. I don't I don't see any any problem with proof of work or other energy intensive ways of validating uh, the blockchain. I think the larger the larger kind of question about clean energy is uh, you know among our society. That's a little bit that's a broader question. I can go there if you'd like, but I mean that's a that's a, uh, a little bit bigger question. No. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, though. Yeah. Maybe another time you and I will just uh, have a beer and go down that path. Yeah. Uh, I realized I got so excited to start this conversation. I didn't even you know, get to set the stage or paint the picture of how did Bitcoin sort of come into your purview? When did you first sort of learn about it and in what context were you paying attention to it? So actually, so Q, this actually has to do with us. It, it came when I was a professor at GW at George Washington University. It was, I wanted, I, want, I can't remember the exact year you took my class, but I think it was a few years, my first year at GW when I was teaching financial accounting. Yes, and, I was spring of 2013. Okay. 
Okay, yeah. So I think it was the year before, because I remember the class you were in, and we would move classes. And it was the year before when I had a student ask me about Bitcoin. And at the time it was, I think it was trading around $300, $400. It seemed expensive to me at the time. And he, he had actually, I, I had known about it beforehand. I had even read the white paper from, from my friends who were in sort of, they traveled in libertarian circles. They told me about it. I read the white paper in 2011, uh, 2012. And even actually, believe it or not, what I did at that time, I read about it. And then I, I kind of read the citations. I read about BitGold that uh, I, read, I read about Nick Zabo who at, at some point in his, in his career, he was associated with GW also. He was, oh, a, uh, yeah, he was actually a, I think he got his, so he's a computer science by training, but he got his a law degree at GW. And at the time he still had a, a law, an email at GW law. And, and I, lo I looked him up in the directory and he was listed as he had some kind of office at GW. So I went to the law school to find him, ask him about Bitcoin. I, didn't, I couldn't find him. They didn't, they didn't have his office and his, uh, he didn't reply to an email, but it didn't bounce back. So, so that was when I first learned about the concept. And then I, I, I sort of, to be totally frank, I didn't really take it seriously for about five or six more years. You know, I, I, you know, it's, I didn't at that point under a look into the code base, I just, I just read the white paper and I, I talked to my friends about it. It wasn't until I got to Texas in about 2017, 2018, when I really started to, to dig in. And, and then I realized, and really not until really the last year and a half, where I started actually really, really diving in and, and understanding what the protocol is doing and what it's not doing and, and, uh, and how, how profound some of the ideas are. So it's been a long, long haul for me. And so, so I've, been, I've been in the space for a while, but I would say seriously in the space for the last two, two, two or three years. I feel so much less bad knowing that you heard about it at the same time and also did absolutely nothing. <laughs> good, 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 good. Um, exactly right. I'm, I'm curious though, cause you know, with your background, having worked in, in the white house during the 2008 financial crisis and sort of seeing the white paper and especially sort of having Bitcoin be described as the potential to be global money. Um, when you had that period of you just sort of put it down and forgot it, were you just very skeptical on this? What what was genuinely your initial reaction there of is is this a Ponzi scheme or something like that? Yeah, I think the 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 I think the reason is that it it you know the not if you think about Bitcoin back then in 2011, it was still extremely extremely radical and fringe, even much more so than today. I mean, it still is a radical idea, but. Back then, you know, the, I think the, the, it really was pretty obscure. I mean, my, my friends, I had one friend who bought some Bitcoin off of Mt. Gox. And then I had another friend who bought some Bitcoin off of, he bought a bunch of Bitcoin from, really, it was a, a drug dealer. <laughs> and so, so he, it was, you know, no one was really trading it at the time or, or didn't really know about it. And I think, I think even the white paper, to be totally frank, you know, now having read the Bitcoin code base, I, the white paper doesn't even really kind of do justice at some level to how deep the ideas are. So you can't, if all you read is the white paper, sometimes it's hard to know what, what is going on. And so it took, it took me some time before I, I really had enough friends around me who were, who were working on this and thinking about it that I actually independently sort of wanted to investigate it. And so, it, it, you know, I do, obviously I do think about those days it, because you know, it's Bitcoin has always been the, you know, I, I would say, I think what, what's, what's happened since then is that the, the community around Bitcoin has, has grown tremendously, right? 
And the knowledge around what Bitcoin is has also grown tremendously from what, where we started in, in 2008. And so I don't even think I had, was able to connect the dots between sort of the failures in the, in the financial system that I was working on daily in the White House to Bitcoin as a solution. It, it, you know, I didn't back then know, think of it in those, in those terms. And I, didn't, I, I guess I didn't realize how deep the problems are. So I'll give you one example. So, so when I left the White House, I, I knew in 2008 that the legacy financial system was broken. So that was very clear to me. And to me, I, what I saw were purely microeconomic problems. What I saw were that there were these investment banks that were totally separate from kind of their, their funding source, were able to gamble with other people's money. They were essentially taking privatized risks and socializing the losses. Uh, and it was leading to a huge amount of risk-taking and a lot of uh, essentially, you know, there's, you could say there's a lot of corruption. I don't know. I, want to, I wouldn't say explicit corruption. It was just people were, were responding to their incentives, but those incentives were broken and they were very far from actual value creation in the economy. That was pretty clear to me in leaving the, the crisis, in uh, leaving in 2008 uh, out of the financial crisis. What I, wasn't, what I didn't understand until I would say even the last two years is sort of the links between those microeconomic problems in the legacy financial system and then the macroeconomic problems that arise from money printing. And those two problems are connected. It's actually a, a deep theoretical question of how exactly they're connected. But, you know, we all knew that the Fed printing all the money leading up to housing bubble fed the, the mortgage-backed security boom, but we didn't really connect the dots as well as until, until recently. And I think what's happened with Bitcoin in the last, since the pandemic, that knowledge about, about the, essentially the, 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 the problem with central banks with unlimited discretionary power has really become, become to the forefront. And to me, Bitcoin is the only solution that we have out there for that. I mean, well, there are other solutions, but, but I don't think those politically would ever work. Uh, yeah. there, there are other versions of these solutions. Very well put. Very well said. I, I'm curious, what what did you learn or what was more validated as you went down the code and, and learned or and read the sort of the code script of Bitcoin? Yeah. So I think the, the biggest is what Bitcoin is and, and is not. And I think right now what's, what's happening is that most people in the, the broader crypto space especially the ones that are coming in from the business side, they really have no idea what's going on. And uh, they don't really, they can't distinguish between Bitcoin and other coins. And even with, when it comes to any specific coin, they really don't know what the protocol does and doesn't do. And, uh, and frankly, to be totally frank, I didn't either until I actually started reading the code. And, and that's just natural because there's a, you know, there's a fixed cost of learning and there's this learning curve. But once you get there, I think you have a lot more appreciation and first knowledge about what, what Bitcoin is, and second, appreciation for how it is implemented and how unique it is, I think. It, it, it is really an amazing, one of the most amazing human achievements, I think, that, that uh, you know, it's the fusion of these 10, you know, really five big ideas together and implemented. And it was kind of done right on, it's like the iPhone, it was kind of like done right in version one. Um, and everything after that has been like small tweaks, but the big stuff, you know, the, the mining incentive, the blockchain, the cryptography, those three big things were done right in the first, the first struck, the first swing at the bat. And it, it's really, it's, it's really amazing. I mean, I think what I'm trying to do now here at Texas A&M is to get more people to, to be able to understand the code and read it 
and I want to propose, propose proposing a new class on Bitcoin, which would probably be in engineering and get computer scientists to be able to, to understand it and, 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 and have this be a part of their, their kind of general knowledge about computation, even if they don't become Bitcoin developers. I think it's, it's, it's something that very much our university systems need. The way engineering and, science, and computer science is taught here in the U.S., universities, you learn kind of very specific uh, skills, like you learn about operating systems or programming languages or networking. But the truth is Bitcoin is kind of cu cuts across all of them at once. And you never, you never kind of work on a big project at, at once, like, which is what Bitcoin is. And, and that, that's something I think is that itself has huge educational value in our universities. Beyond, you know, the an, an introduction of Bitcoin courses, what what would you like to see more of from the educational standpoint from the universities, given the fact that there is so much educational content for many Bitcoiners who feel like to be self-sovereign, which is what Bitcoin promises, they have to sort of take ownership over their education of Bitcoin and go down these different rabbit holes on YouTube University, for example. What What are your what are you looking to accomplish from the university standpoint with Bitcoin education? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, Q. Yeah, I think I'll tell you, actually, I have a lot to say about this. I wrote an essay about this called Bitcoin and the Academy, which, which I, I'm, I'm hoping to publish at, at Bitcoin Magazine as well as in, in a longer version in a, in a more formal academic place. And Bitcoin is actually a great inspiration for how the Academy needs to change. Now, the reason is that Bitcoin did not emerge out of the academy, right? It, it came from essentially from inside, from the, the deep corners of the market, from these these on a cryptography mailing list. But it is different from most other innovations. I mean, it does have sort of an academic taste. It, it has a white paper, which is very similar to a research paper. The it, it cites many other works, just like academic research does, and it has a long. It, it builds off of you know, 50 years of ideas, like a lot of research, research does as well. And the truth is, the truth, the, the harsh truth is that no academic or scholar could have made or discovered Bitcoin because of the way universities are organized. We are organized in a very much a siloed, disciplinary and departmental structure. So and students are in the same way. You go to you go to campus, you become a business major or you study computer science or you study psychology or whatever it is. And the Bitcoin really is a fusion of multiple ideas at once that ties them together in very non-trivial and deep ways. They're not, it's not just stitched together in a, in a, in kind of a, at the surface level, but they're very, in a very deep way, they are connected. And we don't do that in, in universities at all. We don't do that in any meaningful or, or, or deep way because we're not structured that way. The history of education has never been that way. And, and I think education needs to change fundamentally for that reason because we need to be able to produce innovations like bitcoin in the future so what i'm trying to do is an uphill battle i will say because you know it's, the the entire educational establishment has its own problems this is one of them and, and i'm trying to get universities to my university first and others down the line to be able to operate in this more flexible and truly interdisciplinary way. I believe that anyone learning about bitcoin is can learn so many different skills and so there's so much there. I mean, it's, you could almost educate yourself entirely on computer science, economics, finance, applied mathematics, pure mathematics, all of it together just by studying Bitcoin. And so, so I, I think there's, it, it's that, it's that broad and deep a, a topic. 
So, so that's why I think it's, it's actually a great example for us in higher education to, to, to lean towards and to, and to, to reorganize ourselves so that we can make things like this happen more often in the future. I love it. And I urge anyone, any students at Texas A&M who are listening to this, I assume you already are very well familiar with Professor Ray because I don't understand why you would be here if you were not. Um, <laughs> so I have a... Thank you. Oh, Q, did I... No, please. No, no, no. no, 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 no. Say, I know I mentioned this at the beginning, but I want to hear some like some deep dirt on Q. Like I want to uh, know, uh, like I, I, I have to imagine he was not the best student or maybe there's some like dichotomy where he was like, he was so smart. Like you wrote like the little, like, you know, the, the student performance reports where it's like, if only he would apply himself. I got a lot of those. Anyway, g give us some, uh, some, some dirt on your interactions with yeah, Q as a student. Yeah. Well, Q, Q was, you know, he kind of was, I would say the, maybe the pejorative way to say he was like the, the class clown, you know, he was always the fun guy in the class. He would always hang out. He I, I do remember he would always hang out afterwards with the pretty girls in the class <laughs> and, and they would always kind of uh, congregate around him. He had, he was the life of the party. You know, I can't disclose his grades. I do have them in a spreadsheet somewhere. I don't remember them, but he, I do oh, remember that's... he was a, a great person to have in class because I, I loved his energy. I loved his good humor and he really livened up what was ordinarily a pretty dry accounting class to be frank. And so I, I don't, Q, I don't know if you were into Bitcoin back then, or I don't, because I, we never certainly talked about it. And, and uh, so that never came up. I wish I had taught something about Bitcoin because, you know, frankly, Bitcoin is part, you know, partly it is an accounting technology. You know, it's a, it's a brand new way of accounting for transactions. And there hasn't been an innovation in accounting since double entry bookkeeping. So, so this is, this is a big, a big step. So I had, I had great memories of Q actually. And, and so I was thrilled when I found out that you were with Bitcoin magazine. I thought that was, that was awesome. I didn't expect the long hair, but. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will. I, I, I don't even know if you remember one of my good friends in that same class, Chris Brown, like you are still the only professor to this day we talk about. And I hit him up like weeks ago when we scheduled to have you join us. And I was like, you will not believe who is coming on that I'm going to chat with. No, to, like to be honest, I think I remember three professors from yeah. college and yeah. Professor Ray, you were genuinely one of them. You were, you made accounting fun and interesting. Thank you. Um, Thank that you is a too. bold claim. I, dude, I know. I know. Um, yeah, I yeah, yeah. I was not into Bitcoin then. I remember I was introduced to Bitcoin. I, I mean, I'll admit this. I was trying to literally get weed shipped to me in DC at the time. And so a friend was like, oh, Silk Road, but you need Bitcoin. And I, just, I had no curiosity or desire because I was so focused. Sophomore year was when I really was introduced to the financial markets far more in depth than I'd ever been. And I actually... I remember coming up to you at one point and asking you, hey, I have this internship at Wells Fargo and I kind of really fuck with it a little bit. Can I not show up to your class from time to time to stay the extra hour? And like, honestly, worst, worst decision. Looking back, like terrible, terrible use of my time. The extra one hour did nothing, but it was a great experience because like, I was so fascinated by financial markets and it didn't help that there was a nice little bull market and I was buying Tesla shares that semester and it was, a, I felt like a genius and there's no reason a 20 year old should ever feel like a genius investing in the stock market. Well, it's good to I, hear that. Go ahead, man. No, yeah. please. 
No, I was gonna say it's good to hear that you're uh, you haven't changed too much. You definitely bring all of the positive characteristics that Professor Rage described to this podcast as well. It is as always a pleasure to to work with you. Yeah. Don't ever quote hey, me well, now. I'll, I'll, I'll never I'll never admit it again. Can you t- tell me what 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 was your how, how did you tell me how did you get to Bitcoin Magazine? What was the, the path? so Can we talk about that? I. I got reintroduced to Bitcoin in 2017 at the end, like during that run up to 1920K. And my, I will, I'll dox myself like this. My good friend, CK Snarks, who runs Bitcoin Magazine, we would like for as long as I can remember, like way back into college, we would have long conversations about investing, stocks, businesses we wanted to open. And we were just hanging out and he brought up Bitcoin to me. And I genuinely, my first reaction was, oh yeah, I've heard of it. Like that, that's that thing from Silk Road, right? He's like, yeah, but like, that's not really all it is. And for me, the thing that really stood out that like it clicked was the absolute digital scarcity. To me, just, oh, if you, if you have fixed supply and then I equated demand to adoption, it just, for me, that made so much sense. And then I, (laughs) the best, best, best blessing that ever happened was at that moment in time, I was still like a getting paid minimum wage, working as an assistant at a Hollywood talent agency, and I had no money. And so I, I couldn't buy any Bitcoin. And if I had bought Bitcoin at that time and watched that crash, I I know myself well enough to, I think I would have been turned off. And so I paid attention to Bitcoin, like would read an article from time to time here or there. But it wasn't until then I got promoted about a year and a half later. And then I just, I started making decent money and had some money to save and went and slowly started accumulating at that point. And then COVID happened. I got laid off and went way deep into this rabbit hole that is Bitcoin and just broader investing. And somehow someone gave me a microphone and put me in front of a camera and people like hearing my voice. I never liked my own voice. So this is strange to me. You do have a radio voice cue, actually. You do. I think that was why you were so successful with the class clown. <laughs> fair, fair. No, I'm glad to hear that. I'm really glad to see your 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 evolution here. I mean, no, that's that's a great it's a it's a great story, and it's a you know I'm I'm really proud of proud of how you've come. I, I appreciate that. I do want to you know spend some time talking to you about you know the research that you've done on. You know, the future of work. When I was going down the rabbit hole of like some of your more recent papers, I started sending some to P and I was like, P, you are going to like go nuts over this because P spends every single argument or discussion that we have finding the incentives. And that's the basis of every argument he makes with me. And so I feel like I'm about to get ganged up on here by just opening this can of worms. But I'd love if you could just share an overview on broad strokes of some of the research you've done on the future of work and how yeah. our incent- incentives are shifting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, I mean, that's a, a favorite topic of mine. I, you know, I, I have a, you know, my PhD really is in, in labor economics and game theory. And one thing that I, one trend that I've noticed of this last decade, it's, it's, it's essentially, it's continuing. It's not that sexy a trend. People don't really talk about it as much, but it's definitely happening. And it's the, essentially the digitization of work. And really what's, you know, we've got the macro scale, you know, 7.7 billion people, billions of people are now coming online for the first time every day. And the internet is still expanding around the world, mobile access, mobile phones. And that has huge, huge consequences for how labor markets and ultimately capital markets will 
evolve over time. We've, we've run a bunch of experiments in this in this last uh, five years of my research lab, where we look at productivity of workers and American students against foreign workers and foreign students. And it's frankly scary. You know, I will say it's scary because we don't realize how good we've had it here in the U.S. for so long, where we're sort of protected from competition, global competition. And now technology is making that competition very apparent at both skilled labor and unskilled labor. And so essentially what's happening is the internet's spreading and now labor markets are becoming much bigger because of the, what the pandemic kind of essentially added rocket fuel to this, this trans, transition towards working and, and being and working, find, finding the best labor, talent, labor and talent anywhere. And so now you really are competing in a much more broader scale. And what that means for skilled labor is that, you know, developers can now work from anywhere and, and they, you know, you will be, you will be competing with an with an international pool of, of labor. And on the unskilled side, there's a huge amount of people coming online with who, who are not gonna be consumers as the internet has, has kind of evolved up till now, but really they are, because they don't have any wealth at this moment, but what they do have is their labor. And so they're going to bring to the, the global labor market a huge amount of labor that will be, that will be essentially used and, and contributed to the global economy. There's a, there, and the signs of this are that, you know, there's a company, let me give you one example of, a, of, a, of a, why, why this matters for, you know, autonomous driving, right? Autonomous driving requires cars to be able to recognize roads on our existing infrastructure around the world. So you want to use AI to do that because you need to, to be able to process images very quickly. Now, vision-based AI is still in the early stages and it, and it can't always distinguish between what's a lamppost and what's a person. And so you need, essentially that AI needs humans to identify a training set. And now what's, what, the way that's done is those jobs, those, that, those, really their tasks are outsourced to countries like in Southeast Asia, like the Philippines, where that can be done very cheaply and at, and at scale. And in fact, there's a company called Scale that does this. They just they're now, I mean, they've shot up in value. They're about, I think, almost $8 billion. They're, they're valued from just a Y Combinator that came out a few years ago. And, and that's one example of how technology is harnessing human labor in new ways. Personally, I think that we, you know, we need to have, you know, broader topic, I guess, for a separate conversation is, you know, more high-skilled immigration here in the U.S. if we want to compete. You know, these immigration quotas don't make any sense. And there's a huge amount of talent abroad that we should bring in, especially at the high skill side to, uh, to help grow the, the new tech economy. So uh, I love, I love that last point in particular, and I know you've written a, a recent paper discussing the necessity of high skilled immigration, but I'm, I'm actually more curious about just jurisdictional reach instead of immigration. Like we live in a hyper digitized world. We're talking about digitizing global money to where our transactions will be immediate we're having this conversation where all three of us, four if you include our producer, are in three different cities all around the country right now. I'm curious, at what point will there be a breaking point? And I, and I almost want to go at, at it from a game theory angle of will there be a point where certain countries will incentivize businesses, not just with taxes, but now you can hire anyone anywhere and we will make it as seamless and easy as possible for you? Or... Like how does how does that transition versus the necessity for people to physically be in a jurisdictional boundary to work and accomplish the work at hand? Yeah, so I, the, I, let me let me reference my prior comment on regulatory 
competition. He, this is another area where I think it makes a lot of sense for countries to be competing with each other, and in some level they already are, for the best remote talent. One case study is, is a country like Dubai, which essentially, if you're a software developer, you can code in Dubai, not pay any US taxes, get access to a huge amount of other co-working spaces and people, and live in some level a, a more a tax-free and better life than you would here in the US where we're still raising taxes left and right. So, so I, I think that kind of competition is actually going to be good for countries like the US because it'll put some pressure, hopefully, on US policymakers to recognize that their, their talent could, could walk out the door uh, at any point. What's happened so far in the, in the US is we've seen, in, post-pandemic, we've seen these tech hubs being, being essentially distributed across the US. So when everything used to be in, in, in San Francisco and New York and maybe Boston, now we've got more of that migration into Austin and Boise and so on. It stayed prim primarily in the US. Okay, so, so far things have been, have been kind of within the U.S. and haven't, haven't had any migration outwards. But it's entirely possible that once, these con these, once people are successful in dreaming up kind of a better society and a better country, that there will be a legitimate choice that people in the U.S. will have to, especially skilled talent will have to be, is do I want to stay in the U.S. and pay this, essentially the, the, the fiscal cost of living in the U.S. with high taxes, high inflation, and all these things that are not, economic policies that are that are just breaking our economy or do I want to move to a city state or a new a new kind of free economic zone like is being created right now in Roatan in Honduras or kind of these these outside of the, the different parts of the world which are so, kind of sovereign sovereign nations unto themselves and those are in the early stages I think that pro that progress in general is good all around because it provides competition for the U.S. to get their fiscal house in order, which is sort of new. So do you feel like, I don't disagree with you, but, and I think we're, we're absolutely seeing that. I, I certainly- But I someone, disagree with you. I'm about to qualify everything I'm going to say. No, no. So as someone who, within the U.S., I, I emigrated from San Francisco. I was in the, the startup ecosystem for many years. And then basically it was like, fuck it. Why am I still living in San Francisco? This right. city is just- I, it was just, you know, garbage city, everybody else that I knew had left, all the entrepreneurs that I knew had left. And so we, we moved to a, a state where, you know, taxes were, were much better. There's much more interesting things happening. It's one of these, you know, these technical hubs that you mentioned sort of that are growing really rapidly. Yeah. I see that happening in the U.S., but you mentioned the idea of, you know, U.S. citizens sort of emigrating outward to other countries, you know, nations that are more economically, have stronger economic incentives. But one of the things that I detest about the United States as a U.S. citizen is that we have some of the most Orwellian laws when it comes to taxes if you move other places. So not a lot of people know this, but the U.S., as I understand it, is one of two countries in the entire world that if you live, if you're a U.S. citizen, if you have a U.S. passport and you go and you live in another country and you work in that country, you still have to pay U.S. taxes as if you were working within the U.S., and that's absurd to me, but that's the case. And then also there's the U.S. exit tax, which as I understand it, it's like if you decide you're like, you know what, I'm going to renounce my U.S. citizenship, I'm going to become a citizen of Honduras, then you have to pay capital gains, short-term, or maybe it's long-term, but capital gains on like 50% of all of your assets directly to the U.S. government. Right. Right. I, I guess what the question here is like, 
two things. One, do you find that as insane and offensive as I do? And then two, do you think that those policies will effectively kind of prevent people from emigrating even as the U.S. continues to become a less hospitable place? So I think, yeah, I mean, those are, those are, I agree. Those are, those are basically obscene taxes. I mean, taxes of that level uh, are unusual and they are, they're, they're very, they're very high. So here's how I predict this will play out. I mean, let's assume that our our fiscal and monetary policies are not going to improve. Let's just assume that's true. I don't think, I think those, those, the taxes that you just mentioned are going to deter older people with significant assets from actually moving, but it's not going to prevent the young people who are just starting out. And so I think what, what could happen, and I would say Puerto Rico is probably the first step in this direction, is that there will be other city-states that, or and eventually sovereign countries that will, will figure out that they want to attract the cool kids out of the U.S. with no taxes or little taxes. And, and there'll have to be a little bit of a coordination effect where You'll have enough people that who want from the U.S. who want to go, and they'll set up a better life. And that's, I think, how eventually this this, this brain drain would would occur. So the, those the, the tax argument will, I think, deter high income, high established, the, the more established populations in the U.S. But it's not going to deter the young. And and that if that's I was running one of the, one of these countries, that's what I would do. I would try to go after the young. No, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, because if you're young, you don't have very many assets already. The the, yeah. the the taxes on you are not going to be substantial anyway. So why the fuck right. wouldn't you just bounce out of a exactly of a sort of slowly right. imploding country? Yeah, yeah. And you don't have you don't have legacy kind of relationships already well established in the U.S. So you can yeah. If you get a, a cohort, your cohort to go, you can all go together. Yeah. And to your point, we're absolutely seeing that with with your writer like Puerto Rico. Most of the well, you know, a number of people that work within the you know Bitcoin magazine recently moved to Puerto Rico for that reason because it right. is extremely tax advantageous. And he just doxed everyone on the executive team. I want to point out, DB, that was P, not Q, who did this. Dude, I can't believe you just said that. You literally just doxed everyone. I just said some people that work in our organization, and you were the one who named our CEO specifically and the exec team. Way to go, my friend. You mean the CEO who posts on Twitter his trees and farm in Puerto Rico? Fair enough. Fair enough. So, you know... Q mentioned, I, I was, as he said, I was extremely excited to talk to you when, you know, I learned about the fa- the, your, your main area of research into incentive structures and performance yeah. management. And I guess I'd love to talk more about that. I'm curious, kind of broadly speaking, what patterns you see in, in existing performance management structures in some of the typical systems that are in place versus like what actually is more effective. And this is sort of broader than Bitcoin. I'm just curious, like in the yeah. business world, what are you, what are you finding in your research? Yeah. So the good news, the good news there is that the real world is beginning to move closer to what I would say is the optimal world that we study in, in economics and game theory. And in that optimal world, you, you have people who are essentially paid closer to their true value rather than for other other stupid reasons like legacy their 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 legacy obligations or their their legacy positions and so from an economic sense we want to move towards pay for performance and what's happened in the economy is technology has allowed for finer measurement of human performance and and human and also better tools to contract on that on that on that work so the, the traditional, you know, 
20 years, 20 years ago, we had a huge amount of face-to-face -face work that were, where people were paid basically fixed salaries with small bonuses, and they worked in these large hierarchies, large organizations. And now we've moved to a network model where people are individual contractors, they are paid fi fixed prices or they negotiate a contractor prices and they're, they're paid on output rather than input. And there's much less hierarchy and they're more entrepreneurs. So that general trend moving, which is the technology enabled, has, has been good for society and for labor markets. Coin is part of that, honestly. I mean, one of the benefits of, of seamless digital payments is that it will allow for better contracting so we can move away from more antiquated, you know, the nine to five, just punching a clock versus what did you actually perform and, and do for me now? So those, those, that big trend is actually in, in the, the right direction. I think there, you know, there are some technical questions on how exactly Bitcoin will interface with this and so on. But, but I think in general, having digital payments will, I, I personally, I think that that area is going to grow, grow a lot. And that's going to be one of the big use cases of digital payments that we haven't seen yet, which is in, just using something like Bitcoin inside of really novel relationships between not just employers and employees, but just people. And so instead of simply just allowing, you know, right now we have, we can allow for peer-to-peer -peer payments where individuals can, you know, you can pay, pay your friends with, say, Bitcoin. But in the future, when, when payments are becoming very granular and automated through AI or through avatars. That's where having, I think, the, the, the foundation of Bitcoin really, really help. The cryptographic foundation of limited the scarcity and so on. And I think that that is going to be one of the futures of Bitcoin. What are some of the most ridiculous, like just like stories that you can regale us with from the world of incentive structure and performance management research. I'm thinking of what's the, the famous book. It's not, I don't think it's measure what matters, but talking about like OKRs, you know, objective and, you know, key result systems for the audience. That's like a performance management system that places like Google became famous for sort of promoting. There's one, there's a story in there talking about the development of the Ford Pinto where like, they were just like, cut all the weight, cut all of it. We don't give a shit. And then of course that like drove people to have this like terribly designed system there was like a yeah. bolt that like was like right in front of the gas can. Then if you got rear end from behind and you were driving a Ford Pinto, your whole car would explode. I'm curious if you, if you can give us any like, you know, stories like that, that you find funny or are funny within the, the incentive research community. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would say the punchline for all these stories are that, you know, people respond to incentives of the matter. There was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. I don't remember his name about 20 years ago, who was throwing too many interceptions. And so his, his coach, fined him $30,000 for each interception that he threw in a game. And that quarterback that year became the most sacked quarterback in the history of the NFL. Oh, <laughs> so that's he, so good. <laughs> so he just, you know, he just, he just held the ball the whole time. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Another one was uh, a while ago, there was a, in Boston, you know, you know, the Boston subway. It's a, a T. The T, exactly right. The T. There was this big crash and there was a big crash, killed the, the driver and then a few people died. They did an investigation and they said, well, why did, why did this guy, what happened here? And the answer was pensions. So it turned out that this, this, the, the driver of the T was on a defined benefit contribution plan and his lifetime pension was based off of not just the last, his final salary of the last year of his work, but really it was like the last month of his work, what, how much salary he, he was collecting that month. 
And so what he did was he went into extreme overtime that last month of work to the point where he was driving his, his subway like 20 hours a day. He was so tired that he couldn't, he couldn't pay attention. He crashed the, the tree, the, the tea and everyone, and you know, he died along with others. So another example mm -hmm. of, of how, how, how incentives matter. Those are kind of funny, funny examples. I, th I think the ones that are a little bit more serious and so, and is our, our society still has massive, massive incentive problems. I think the worst, frankly, are still in the legacy financial systems. And I, to be honest, I think one of them right now is in venture capital. Right now, if you look at the funding of innovation, which is what venture capital does, and you look at, for, take an example is, is like, take the, the, the boom in the altcoins, right? Which essentially, the altcoins are funded very, very differently than the birth of Bitcoin. These, these are largely funded by VCs who are playing a marketing game with their limited partners. And, and it's no joke that they have an incentive to, essentially, they, you know, the VCs have access to huge amounts of institutional capital and they pump money into these, these startups and then essentially exit right before or after the IPO. Maybe it's, it's a coin, maybe it's an IPO. And essentially retail, the retail community, investor community is holding the bag. And it, it's, it's all, it, to me, it, I mean, as an academic, I can say this since I don't have my own skin in the game, but you know, it's, it's almost a level of corruption that, that we, this, this exists to this day where these highly centralized gatekeepers, these VCs have enormous amounts of power and influence in the, the, the course of innovation in terms of what products and technologies people work on and what they fund, what young people do for a living, because the reality is that, you know, everyone follows incentives. And so individuals, you know, I would say once, once a week, I would say I get an email from a student who wants to create a new cryptocurrency because they know that there's a reward for this in the market. They see the, they see what VCs are funding and the VCs are simply, you know, they're funding these projects. They'll, they're playing their pump and dump game and they get a big return for their, from their LPs and they go on to the next thing. So it's, it, you know, not as funny a story. I think it's a, it's a real problem in our society. And we need as a, at some level as a, as the Bitcoin community, I think needs to, needs to call this out for what it is because it does run against some of the ethos of our, our community here. Yeah, I think that is a very astute observation, but it's just, that's absolutely true. You know, as I mentioned, I was in startup land in the SFB area and helped build some of the, some of the early coding boot camps. And the company that I was part of, we, we, we had the, the, just the dumb fucking idea, like we're going to be profitable from day one and we're going to work to the only thing that we're going to care about is actually providing value to our customers. The product that we provide is going to be the best in the space. End of story, bar none. And we, and we did it. And, you know, when VCs were like, yeah, we want to, we want to throw a bunch of money your way. We were like, no, we're not going to do that because we want to focus on, on producing, you know, high quality product education. And that was a terrible mistake because what they did is they just turned around, went to our shittier competitors and just yeah. blasted like millions and millions of dollars and turned like, you know, our, one of our shittiest competitors into like the behemoth just by through marketing. And in retrospect, it was a terrible, terrible decision to focus on profitability. Like that is not what any investor right. wants to see. And right. that, I mean, it was, it just like screwed us over. What actually we should have done is we should have only cared about revenue, you know, expanded massively, made terrible decisions for our customers yeah. because yeah. that was what was going to look best on paper. And it was, it was so demoralizing to realize like, oh my God, this is just a terrible, terrible system. Yeah, exactly right.
That's right. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's deeply flawed in multiple ways, and it's not exactly obvious how, how, how to clear how to you know how to clear it out. I think I think the you know the, frankly, let me speak honestly. I think the real idiots in this game are the limited partners, like the institutional investors who have given the VCs all this capital and believed in their nonsense for so long. Like they, as a society, I think we need to come down hard on the pension funds, the university endowments, all the people who are running these uh, formal institutional capital. And uh, because I think there's long-term problems with the, with the way that capital is allocated here in the, in the U.S., you know, in the innovation world. Yeah, yeah completely agree. Yeah. Completely agree. Well, I mean, you know, as, as a, a good Bitcoiner, Bitcoin maximalist, I feel like I am compelled to say, or actually I'm suppressing the scream that I feel like I'm supposed to say, which is like, fix the money, fix the world, Bitcoin yeah. fixes this. Yeah. Do you think that sound money will start to fix these incentive structures that we kind of are talking about and create these systems, right? Because it's not the individuals. There's another, that's another pattern I see, right? We People love to demonize specific actors who all they're doing is following the incentive structures that are in place. You know, Charlie Munger said, you know, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. It's a bit of a tangent. But my question to you is, do you think that something like Bitcoin, or in this case, Bitcoin, can actually start to fix these issues? Or do you feel like that's kind of a pipe dream and that we will see these types of broken incentive structures built in any new system regardless? You know, that is, that is the, the, that is really the trillion dollar question. And it's, it's something that I, I, I do think about a lot. It's not, it doesn't have an easy answer. So it's, it's got multiple phases to it. I, I, what, let me, let me try to answer it this way. First of all, Bitcoin is, you know, it has one additional benefit of that. We can just toss out the old system and rebuild a new. So that will be a, that itself will have value because any, you could say any human social science system over time gets corrupted and 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 uh, it captured. Would this happen on Bitcoin? So the the reality, so in this sense, um, I don't think it's given that Bitcoin would be immune 100% to some of the problems with the legacy financial system today without some work, I think, from the Bitcoin community on our principles. And I think the principles are actually what can, what can the, the principles are to me, the most important part of Bitcoin are the principles and, and it's the only it's the only technology that really has any principles and i think it's important for us to like consistently address acknowledge celebrate and discuss those principles much more than i think it is the to have conversations about what just what the price of bitcoin is which is where most of the conversation around bitcoin is today that's part of the reason why i, I you know my lab i focus a lot on educating students about the ideas behind bitcoin what were some of the design choices that went into this because in the future Bitcoin economy, there will also be future design choices that have to be made. And even if the foundation is strong, without knowledge of what those design choices were and the fundamental principles, you are at risk of creating another legacy financial system in the future. So that's why I think the, on the education side, it's, it's very important for us to, to understand Bitcoin is much more than just a technology. It, it really is a new way of thinking. And we need to start advocating and explaining some of these principles of, of decentralization and sovereignty and individual rights and, uh, and transparency that that need to be embedded inside of a you know the, the long-term future I, i'm not i would say i'm not comfortable saying that without doing anything that the bitcoin economy will be will be completely perfect so i think we need to work work at it 
Yeah. I mean, what is that? Would you, I'm curious about how you guys were, would think about this. Honestly, I think you gave a fantastic answer. I think I, uh, I love what you said about the focus in the Bitcoin lab that you've built. I think, to, you know, Q kind of joked about it, but th that is the, I say it like so often, it's almost like a, like a bingo card item now. <laughs> I'm just like the incentives, it's all about the incentive structure. So. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm curious as we, as we wind down this, Professor Ray, Bitcoin doesn't always have the most positive sentiment around it. Like there are some very passionate people who are, feel strongly against Bitcoin, especially those in academia. And I'm curious what conversations are like with some of your colleagues who may not necessarily see Bitcoin in the same way that you see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I faced a lot of these conversations when I tried to run my conference. So I will say, you know, first among the universe of, of universities, Texas A&M as a university is probably as, would give Bitcoin as fair a shake as any university. There, there are other universities that are, for, I would say, actively hostile. My, my campus and my, my colleagues were a little bit, they were more neutral. They were like, well, why, why Bitcoin? Why not, other, why not some other coin? Or why, who cares really? You know, why, why, should, why, why, can we, why should we kind of go out and, and have a conference about this brand new technology? Why don't we just sit back and wait and let the market see if this has any value that was more my experience from my local my kind of colleagues here is that they were a little less reluctant to take a plant a flag and and take a position on bitcoin specifically or even crypto some of them were saying even the entire crypto space is too speculative where universities we want to be a little bit more slow and deliberate and and backward looking personally i think that's a mistake i think universities have to be forward looking and we have to take a position and you know, we have to speak from a, a place of conviction. We have to figure out what we believe, right? Have a debate about that. And then we can explore different ideas based on those beliefs. Today, a lot of times what's happening in universities are, are you know, it's, it's not really a place for free speech anymore. And, and if you've got a, a different set of beliefs, then, then you know, you can, you can suffer from that uh, internally. So I think what's, what happens in the academic, you know, the academic community specifically among, among economists, economists very generally are pretty, they're pretty agnostic. There's, I would say it's ranging from, from hostile at worst to agnostic about Bitcoin. And really, I think a lot of this, they just don't really understand it. And they're not willing to, to, to address and understand it for what it is. I don't think it's an accident for me to say that no economist could have made it. We just don't, our training as in, as in, in the economics, we just don't have the, the, the to be totally frank, the, the skills or the, the knowledge to be able to actually take an idea and implement it in a real way. Economists are great at commenting on things that have already been, that, that have happened in the past or trying to offer some vague predictions about the future where they don't have any skin in the game. That's basically what, economists do, both academic and professional economists. And so some of my colleagues, you know, at around the U.S., when I was trying to get them to come speak at my conference and address Bitcoin, the best of them would say, you know, we just don't know enough. I don't know enough about it, so I'm not going to speak. So that was like the best answer. And then the worst answers would be things like, well, you know, I think, I don't know if I believe Bitcoin, but I believe blockchain technology could be, you know, you would get kind of some nonsense answers like that. So so I think ultimately it's because this the we the academic community, like I said earlier, they're not structured to be able to understand Bitcoin. And you have to kind of be a little bit of a maverick or a misfit kind of as I become to be able to truly address what Bitcoin is intellectually in an honest way, because you have to be able to abandon 
exclusively relying on your own discipline and embrace multiple disciplines at once and try to see how they fit together, which is what, which is what I think Bitcoin does in a, in, a, in a beautiful and amazing way. So I think it's still a, an ongoing battle. The, the battle that I'm, I plan to fight in my, my career, my life, is to, to help educate others about, about Bitcoin and what it is and, and how it works. And to, over time, I think, you know, I think we have the right ideas on our side. And uh, over time, we can, we can convince the, the academic community that this is worthwhile and this is worth studying and this is worth, worth uh, understanding. Absolutely. I mean, as you you and your team continue to do work, I'm sure many other people, both at your university and others, will be looking to you guys as leaders in this space, in the academic realm especially. So thank yeah. you for continuing to just be, you know, the coolest fucking professor out there. But there was one thing you kind of did that was always kind of uncool. Let's hear it. That, Let's hear it. That, Professor Ray, was your daily pop quiz that was never really a pop quiz. So... <laughs> P and I, I did tell P the story. Yeah, you got you got to paint the picture for everyone. So, yeah. like, how for the audience, for the audience, what Professor Ray used to do is, yeah, yeah. I kid you not, we had an hour and fifteen minute lecture. The first hour, it would be you would learn the topic at hand, and every single day, with the exception of two days, the entire semester, he would have in that final 15 minutes a pop quiz. So it was almost expected that you would have one. And I mean, it was, it it got to be fun towards the end of the semester. Like we would have some fun with it, but I have gone ahead and prepared a pop quiz for you. (laughs) So you get to- If you find this pop quiz, you will lose tenure. Some some are very simple, like this first one, the maximum number of Bitcoin are- 21 million. Thank you very much, sir. Next question is the yes. first country that adopted Bitcoin. Okay. So let me, I'm going to guess. This is a, okay. So I'm going to tell you, I don't know. I'm going to guess it's El Salvador. You are correct. Oh, okay. And okay, to be great. fair, the, the first country ad, that adopted it as legal tender. Yeah. I, I kept it vague just so that I could try to, to stump you a little bit there. But, yeah, but you yeah. picked I was up wondering if there's a trick question there, but, but okay. I got that one. Let's keep going. Which country has the largest share of network hash rate? Okay, so I, I think at this point, I would guess it's the US. That is correct. Yeah. If you get this at this point, I'm just, I'm going to walk <laughs> off camera. What is the current block height? Oh, okay, that's <laughs> hard. That is hard. Okay, let me, I, 700K, somewhere in the 700K. You are very close. Am I close? Yeah. We okay. just we just passed block 750k. We're at 750 and four. 750k oh, wow. four. Wow. So we're right there. Okay, I was I was in the ballpark. In the ballpark. Yeah. The final question, and I honestly I didn't even like this question. The answer is not me, but who is your all time favorite student? <laughs> Choose your oh, next one very hard. carefully. That that is hard. I have to give you one name. You can. You can say whatever you want. I mean, as long as it's not. <laughs> you know, I don't have one. I honestly don't have one. Yeah, I, I can't. I, it's like picking among your kids. You know, it's 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 hard to spoken uh, like a true politician, <laughs> and I mean that in the worst possible way. Q, how did as someone, I guess you? As someone as someone who has no children, let me tell you, that's the exact answer a parent gives when they have a favorite, <laughs> and the, the kid who's not the favorite asks the question, <laughs> which means. Right. He it's answered the me. question correctly. <laughs> uh, he, he did. He did. Right. Um, right. 
Professor Ray, you yeah. are so kind to gift us with your time today and, and your generosity to share all your answers. And thank you for all the work that you do. Can you let our audience know how they can know more about the work you guys are doing down at the university as well as anything else that you are working on? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So first is what we do around Bitcoin is we do an annual conference around Bitcoin. It's it's every every spring. It's usually the last Friday of April. And we have several panel panel discussions. It's through the Mays Innovation Research Center, which is what I direct. And so I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to, if anyone is, is interested, just message me on Twitter or on, you can email me directly, Karok, K-O-R-O-K at tamu.edu, texasanduniversity.edu. If you are ever in College Station, well, we can show you our, our Bitcoin lab. Our lab is run by, out of a nonprofit I created, the Southwest Innovation Research Lab. So you can go to southwestirl.org and you'll, you'll see our lab. And we do you know, monthly events around and meetups around Bitcoin. We, uh, we see, we bring students in and we bring in speakers actually. And the last thing I'm doing is I'm trying to get a class approved in on programming Bitcoin in the university this, this spring. And that one is, uh, that's, I think we'll, we'll have to, that will be for Texas A&M students, but I want to make a version of that that will be available online. So that one I'm actually in the process of preparing now. I, I did a lot, spent a lot of my summer. It's a, it's a technical coding class around Bitcoin. The other class I'd like to teach is an, actually an accounting class, believe it or not, Q an accounting class about transactions and value and how accounting started and how Bitcoin is like the major innovation in accounting. I think that would be interesting for a broader audience. And I would love to hear feedback from students and your audience on what, what, what kind of a class that would, that, that would, would be successful. That's in the early stages. Interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely stay in touch about that and, and excited to see all the development that you're working on, Professor Ray. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and likewise, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're. You're doing this, Q. I mean, I'm, I'm really. Uh, there's a lot of things you could do much worse than than what you're doing now. So, I think. I think. I think. To be frank, you know, when I when you met me <laughs> back then, when I was a professor back then, a I was more of a hard ass, so that's why the pop quizzes, and b I was much more just conventional. I was just kind of like a re just a regular professor, and. I kind of fell off the edge these last, last few years, and I realized there are, there are serious problems with our society, our university system, our monetary system. There's some serious shit going on. I mean, in, 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 a, in a way that if you don't say anything, you're sort of just almost agreeing to the, the nonsense. And now I'm much more attuned to that. And my future students now, I'm much more sympathetic to people who would have interest like you in, in this space. So I completely support and encourage anyone, any young person in the audience who is interested in, in Bitcoin and, and to learn that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great thing. It's very different from anything else you've seen. Don't be afraid to kind of explore your interests and, and you know, and question all of the, the, basically question everything you've learned about your, you know, your entire life about the money and financial system, because the, the, the legacy financial system, I'm hoping will come down in our lifetimes and, and Bitcoin is the way it's going to happen. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today. Oh! <laughs>